Welcome to another episode of Million Dollar Stories, where we get to interview authors from all over the world. I love history. I love learning from history. And if you don't know history, you are doomed to repeat it. That's why we have our next guest on. His name is Professor Philippe or Philip in the American identity, uh, Gerard. He wrote a book called Haiti, The Tumultuous History, from Pearl, from Pearl of the Caribbean to Broken Nation. The Tumultuous History from Pearl. Yeah, and I guess it just repeats on there. But it's basically the entire journey of uh, the, the country of Haiti. And the only thing I really know about it is, I believe Christopher Columbus came across it right around the same time that um, uh, in 1492, right? So that was it whenever it was found. And I know that there was a uh, slave uprising, I think in 1791, somewhere in there. I know that mm -hmm. his uh, Americans got involved right around 1915. So they've started to make it... Um, make it, you know, get involved to, I guess, protect their interests. And I know in 1986, I think it became what we call a democracy, whether that's true or not, I'm not sure. So it is an honor to have you here, Professor. All right. Well, thank you for having me here too. So uh, yeah, let's, let's go back to the genesis of the book. You wrote this in 2010, it looks like. So why did you write it? Well, originally the idea was simply to have a book that would be a, a short, readable, one-volume history of Haiti, where people would be interested in a, a reader about this country. Uh, either people would visit there. Uh, quite a few Americans go to Haiti on mission trips, uh, foreign aid, or for tourism, though that is a bit more rare, or people that are generally intrigued by this country that is quite unique. Uh, so I started with that just as a general readership, one-volume, a reader, uh, but also wanted to address another issue, which is the one question I get asked the most about Haiti, since I'm a specialist of that country. Uh, how come Haiti is so poor today? Because in the American media, whenever you hear about Haiti, it's either that it was just hit by an earthquake, a hurricane, some kind of political upheaval, the kidnapping wave has gotten too bad, or the U.S. gets to intervene again there. And people always ask me, well, how come this country uh, has uh, issues? Is it caused by foreign domination, uh, climate change, uh, political dysfunction, colonialism? Uh, so I wanted to address that question in the book as well. Excellent. And my only assumption is that I think you have it in the summary, homegrown dictators. I would just think there's chaos in the streets there. Maybe there's no law and order, but it is run by homegrown dictators. That's my belief. But what would you say in regards to the real cause of why Haiti is not profiting or producing any type of uh, financial uh, gains? Uh, well, one thing that people often forget about Haiti is that it used to be a far more prosperous country than it is today. Uh, if you go back to the 18th century, when Haiti was still a colony, a French colony known as Saint-Domingue, uh, it was viewed as an Eldorado of the Americas, the richest colony uh, in the New World by any colonial power. Uh, so American colonies of Britain, like, I don't know, the state of New York or, or Georgia, or even Mexico for uh, uh, Spain, uh, would have been less profitable than Saint-Domingue. Uh, obviously, this was based on a perverted system. Uh, it was a sugar plantation colony based on slavery, uh, but a lot of wealth. So it's over the past 200 years that Haiti has gone uh, down downhill. Uh, essentially, there are, you might say, three potential explanations for why Haiti is poor today. Uh, one is the legacy of colonialism. Uh, that Haiti was once governed by Spain, going back to the days of Columbus, or by France, going back to 18th century, or by the U.S. Uh, there is a history of uh, U.S. interventions in the past 100 years, uh, so that's one explanation. I can get back to it later. 
uh, or maybe an issue that is more the environment, that Haiti has been ravaged by uh, hurricanes, earthquakes, deforestation, uh, AIDS in the 70s, so you can make an argument for that. Or the third explanation, which is the one that I tend to support more, is political dysfunction of the past 200 years, uh, that Haiti has been plagued by a series of uh, bad rulers uh, that have run the country into a ditch. Obviously, history is a complicated matter. It's not always black and white. You have a lot of gray areas. So the three options that I proposed, it's possible to say all of the above or 90% of one, 10% of the other. It doesn't have to be a purely the colonial legacy theory or purely political dysfunction. Well, let's go back to 1915, I think, is whenever Americans got involved. Mm-hmm. And uh, as a history buff to some degree, I know that the world started to change drastically right around 1912, 1913, whenever mm-hmm. U.S. created the Federal Reserve. All of a sudden, that changed, uh, you know, how the world looked at the gold standard. And, uh, you know, obviously, we have World War One soon after. So a lot happens then. What's ha- Why did Americans feel like it was a necessity to protect their interests in Haiti? What was happening then? Well, the early 20th century, the context is one of multiple U.S. intervention in the Caribbean. Uh, Haiti is one of many. Uh, you're probably familiar as a history buff with the Spanish-American War, 1898, the U.S. intervention in Cuba, uh, the intervention in Panama from 1903 further when the U.S. started building the canal there. Uh, but there are many others. The U.S. repeatedly invaded uh, places like Nicaragua, Cuba, Dominican Republic. So Haiti is one of many. Uh, why did the U.S. intervene so much? Uh, partly it was due to commercial interests. Uh, is there oil in Tampico, Mexico? Well, let's invade there. Is there sugar in Cuba? Let's invade there. Uh, and in the case of Haiti, uh, there was quite a few uh, U.S. financial interests, especially in loaning money to Haiti and making money off for U.S. banks. Uh, there was also a big naval strategic interest in the early 20th century is when the U.S. Navy went from a very second-tier Navy to the dominant power that it is today, and there's a big focus on controlling the Caribbean. Uh, that means invading, uh, intervening in Panama to secure the canal there. Uh, Cuba and Haiti happened to control the Windward Passage. If you look at the map of the Caribbean, uh, the naval route that will take you from New York to the Panama Canal will go straight between Haiti and Cuba. That is called the Windward Passage. Uh, so once you open the Panama Canal in 1914, you want to make sure that you control the main access to it from the East Coast. And that might mean getting a base at Guantanamo Bay on the Cuban side uh, mm. and also in Haiti on the other side. So there was a strategic interest, especially in the context of uh, World War One. So basically, uh, militarily, the- militarily, maybe is their number one priority. That's it. Uh, yes, there's also a frame of mind that is very early 20th century when the U.S. government, which at that point is very white Anglo-Saxon, Woodrow Wilson was a, a rather old-fashioned, to put it uh, mildly, when it comes to racial issues. Uh, when they look down at places in the Caribbean or Haiti, uh, they view either countries a Hispanic heritage, African heritage, uh, Native American heritage, mostly black in the case of Haiti. And there is a quite strong understatement of uh, undercurrent of racism, or at least a feeling of superiority. And so when Americans saw Haiti going through a series of turbulent crises in the early 20th century, the political system was very dysfunctional at that point. Uh, There's a sense of going there to, and that's the words of President Wilson, uh, teach those people how to elect good men, kind of carry on the white man's burden to invade Haiti for a number of years, 
refashion the political system and institute somehow American-style democracy. Uh, the actual invasion in 1915 was prompted by an event where President of Haiti in that summer uh, was not just overthrown by mob, but actually physically dragged to the three streets of Port-au-Prince and lynched, dismembered by a crowd in the streets of the capital. What year was that? Uh, so when that happened, uh, the U.S. government thought, well, Haiti has become dysfunctional enough that uh, we need to step in and, in the words of Wilson, uh, teach them how to elect good men. So ah. there's a sense of uh, uh, promoting democracy that is there uh, as well in 1915. Got it. Okay. So there was absolute turmoil in 1915. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Wow. Okay. So one thing that I have always heard about Haiti growing up, I was born in 1984. Mm -hmm. It mm -hmm. was a very poor nation. There was all kinds of stuff on TV, but AIDS was a huge aspect of it, right? So mm -hmm. what was happening in Haiti and what made it so uh, much of a, um, uh, I guess, a power plant for this disease? Uh, well, such AIDS did not originate uh, in Haiti. It's a country that has origins in uh, Central Africa. I'm no doctor, but I think there's some connection with people eating bush meat, meaning like apes and such, and you're... That's how this, the disease went from other great apes to, to humans. Uh, but it was introduced to Haiti through simply travel. Somebody who had had sexual contact in Central Africa and came to Haiti. Uh, it tended to uh, run rampant there because in the 70s, people don't have a full understanding of AIDS and don't protect themselves the way they should. And, and Haiti became one of these uh, focuses. Uh, I think there's a bit of stereotyping too going on because AIDS was not just in Haiti. Uh, but because the image of Haiti in the U.S. is fairly banned, uh, that became kind of a motto in the 70s or early 80s. That's the at-risk groups, uh, all the H's, uh, heroin addicts, uh, homosexuals, uh, and Haitians. That became kind of the catchword at the time uh, in a way that Haitians think was uh, a bit excessive in the case of, of their group. Uh, obviously, it had an impact economically. That's one of the many reasons why Haiti is poor. Uh, AIDS has a tendency to hit uh, people uh, who are young. Uh, in their productive years, and if they die, then you are left with the oil taking care of the babies, and it has an economic cost. Wow. H have you spent a lot of time in Haiti? Uh, not as much as I want, because every time I plan a trip, something bad happens, and I have to, uh, to cancel, uh, especially the past couple of years. Uh, it is a different country when you get there. There's a lot of things that are uh, intriguing compared with other Caribbean islands. It has a very distinctive history, uh, culture that is unique. Uh, the landscape is beautiful. Uh, the issue about traveling there uh, is, again, the political instability. Uh, like right now, for example, I would definitely not recommend going. There's a big wave of kidnapping. Oh, wow. And as a tourist coming from the U.S., yeah, you would travel around with a big target on your head saying it's quite obvious that you're not from there, that you don't speak the language, uh, and, and that you presumably have several hundred dollars in your pocket. And that is equivalent to the yearly income of many Haitians. So that would be uh, not advisable. So do people uh, go there to travel to see the scenery and the environment? I, I don't think a lot of Americans even think of that. They may go to help, but I don't think it's there to travel and see how beautiful it is. I may be wrong. So why do people travel there? Uh, well, it used to be quite a tourist destination, uh, especially in the 70s, 80s, under the dictatorship of Baby Dog. Uh, it was terrible to Haitians, but it did provide a stable political environment, and foreigners felt like they were safe uh, to travel to Haiti. So there were quite a few people in the 70s and early 80s that would go to Haiti. Uh, Club Med, for example, the big French resort, would have one operating in, in Haiti and just enjoy the scenery uh, there. 
So there's a beautiful castle to the north of Haiti, Cité de la Ferrière, which is the biggest castle in the Caribbean. Uh, snorkeling, just enjoying the rum. Uh, maybe a, a fake little voodoo ceremony for the tourists. I mean, there was uh, the crafts is very good. Haiti has a great tradition of folk art, so plenty enough to occupy a whole week. Uh, when Baby Doc was overthrown in 1986, that set up a period of great instability with several regimes coming in and out, and that kind of scared tourists away. From that point forward, mid 80s forward, tourism took a nosedive. People that I've met when going to Haiti, they usually go for some professional purpose. Uh, either people that go on mission trips, are part of NGOs, uh, are foreign diplomats. The rare tourist that's kind of the uh, uh, thrill seeker, the kind of tourist that would also go to North Korea or something, that just want to do something different from the others. As far as mainstream tourists, the only people that I know of would be on cruise ships. There's a place in northern Haiti, uh, like a bay that has been bought by a Royal Caribbean. Uh, where they kind of close up the bay and then cruise ships will come on for one day in Labadee and northern Haiti, uh, be on the beach and rent excursions that don't really go far from the bay. And that's it. A lot of tourists don't even realize that they're in Haiti because the uh, uh, the trip on the schedule is outlined as being in uh, uh, Santo Domingo or Hispaniola. They use all terms for Haiti so that people don't realize, oh, my God, I am in voodoo <laughs> land for the day and tourists don't get afraid. Uh, so that's the only kind of mainstream tourism that you have. And isn't that crazy? The brand recognition with Haiti is that people are afraid and you have to hide it that way. That's that's sad. Um, when I think of Haiti, I think of the cover of your book. I'm looking at it right now and uh, I would figure out I would figure that it looks very much like that. That's what's in my head. Uh, so when when you're there, what is it like? Can you kind of. Tell our audience what it's like to be in Haiti, as in the day-to-day. Are you carrying a gun? Are you constantly searching for food? Is it scary at all times? What's it like? Uh, when you say, uh, what is it to be like for a person visiting or a person who lives there? Because it's a very different experience. Yeah. L- let's, say, let's say both. I would like to start off with your perspective when you go to travel okay. as, a, uh, as an outsider coming in. Uh, well, the main point of entry would be the airport of uh, Port-au-Prince, uh, Toussaint Louverture Airport. It is named after the great hero of the Haitian Revolution. Uh, it is a bit to the north of downtown, but very close to slum areas. So from the get-go, you get confronted with uh, uh, the extreme poverty of Haiti. Uh, fairly few people travel to Haiti. So when you leave the airport, there will be the usual crowd of people trying to sell you a taxi ride and so forth. Uh, but you definitely don't want to hang around the area or walk too much because you are very near one of the biggest swamps uh, in Port-au-Prince, uh, so you're at risk of kidnapping. Uh, most people will go straight from there to the downtown, but even traveling through downtown in a taxi will be quite the experience. Uh, even after the earthquake of 2010 that ravaged much of Haiti, people still have not completely rebuilt, so you still have people living in the streets under uh, blue tops uh, kind of tents. It's very densely populated countries. So uh, you have people everywhere. Every street will be jam-packed with cars and bicycles and people walking and uh, street stalls of vendors that go all the way into the middle of the street and amounts of garbage because the garbage doesn't get picked up. And it's vibrant and uh, exhilarating, but uh, uh, a bit overwhelming at at times. Uh, Most foreign tourists at that point will go to some of the few hotels that do care, cater to foreign people, usually on expense accounts. Uh, so a big hotel that is up to modern standards, maybe in Pétionville, the more 
posh neighborhood of uh, Port-au-Prince. Uh, there for a while, you can be in a like Hilton or Holidays Inn kind of environment uh, where you get electricity 24 hours a day and water in the tap and good service. That will cost you quite a bit because to create that, the hotel will have to create a bubble with generators and such because public services do not work properly in Haiti. So you live in that weird environment where you are at uh, Western standards, but you look out from the balcony and you'll see slums on the other side. So it can be a, a bit of a dichotomy. Wow. Uh, if you travel around the country itself, uh, if you travel more as a tourist, I remember first going there when I was a student working my PhD thesis 20 some years ago. So my budget was far more limited, so I had to live more than locals. And uh, it's a bit more complicated because the main way to travel in that case, if you can't fall for a taxi, uh, will be in the tap-tap. These are the, the common taxis where people will be together. Usually it's a pickup truck where the bed in the back has been adopted for people to sit in there on all the school bus from America that has been repurposed as a, a place to travel. Uh, but for people to afford it, you have to jam-pack it as much as possible. So a school bus that's planned for 30 kids will be 60 people. Even on the bumpers on the back, they'll install a seat there uh, and then uh, stuff or whatever on the roof as well. So you might spend two hours just to get started so that the bus is full and the bus driver will not leave until the bus is jam-packed. And then you go four miles and you stop because somebody wants to get up there and it's seated all the way at the back of the bus. So everybody has to get up so that the person in the back of the bus can get up. So uh, take your time. Everything that you see is simple uh, might take more time uh, as a result. Uh, there are a lot of uh, electricity shortages. That's something that uh, Haitians complain about a lot, blackouts. So you might only have electricity one hour a day. Uh, the water might be just a trickle, obviously not drinkable. Uh, traveling at night might be a bit scary because there's a blackout, so the city is pitch black. At least you can see the stars, but it's kind of weird to be in a city of several hundred thousand people and be in complete darkness. And many of the manholes have been stolen for the steel, so you might have a hole somewhere that you fall straight into sewage, so be careful for that. Uh, so a little thing that you might think are very simple in the U.S. becomes a bit more complicated. Uh, as far as really living like a local, then it's a much, much harder life. Uh, most people will be living in uh, more like a slum environment, and it's more like a struggle for survival in terms of living on two, three, four dollars a day. That's the typical Haitian. So, just having a bowl of beans for lunch—that's already an achievement. What's the food like? Uh, Do you have to worry about your food, it, or is it even healthier than here? Because I know how how corrupt uh, the FDA here is in the United okay. States. Okay. Uh, well, there's no FDA in Haiti. You get what you <laughs> yeah, got. No, I know that. Yeah. People, the issue is not too much. Or is it organic? Is it too much fertilizer? It's more just quantity to have something. For most people, the food will not be high cuisine because you just take whatever the cheapest is, usually riz et pois, rice and peas. Uh, the meat tends to be overcooked because you're afraid of a, a disease and such in the Caribbean. Uh, so people tend to cook their meat if they can afford it uh, a lot. Uh, but the, for the poor, it's really just whatever you can get your hands on, uh, basic rice. There was even a case uh, years ago of women that would put collect mud and make mud cakes because people were hungry enough that this is the only thing they could afford. No nutritional value whatsoever in a mud cake, obviously, uh, but it was just a way to tie up your stomach and take away the hunger pains. Uh, 
as far as the more elaborate fine cuisine, which you find elsewhere in the Caribbean, it's not quite as developed just because the country is poor. So you don't have really the luxury of trying to think about the higher fine cuisine for that reason. Mm. Uh, traditionally, it's more of a French Caribbean. So it will be a fusion cuisine uh, involving some African elements, uh, some French elements, some Native American elements. But if you really want to experience the finest French Caribbean cuisine, I would say head to places like Guadeloupe or Martinique, other French islands that have a much higher standard of living and can afford to <laughs> spend more time thinking of the quality of the food rather than just availability. Mm. So my cousin recently traveled uh, before the war started to mm. Palestine and to Israel, mm. and she was explaining what it's like there. and. Uh, how you were always on guard, right? You, you kind of have to watch your back a little bit. When I think of Haiti, I'm thinking it's very much like that. So if you're out there by yourselves, I, I, you might even need a guard with you and you might need some type of way to defend yourself. Is that something that crosses your mind um, whenever you visit? Uh, well, I tend to be a tall man, I'm broad shoulders and maybe a bit silly. So I really don't pay too much attention to my safety. Oh, wow. Uh, and I remember... First going there as a grad student, I uh, decided during the weekend when the archives were closed to go and, oh, the mountains are pretty, let's go and hike. Looking back on it, maybe not the safest thing to do. Uh, one obvious thing to notice in Haiti, that's a country that was born of a slave revolt. Uh, so it was a plantation colony where about 90, 95% of the people were enslaved. Uh, they won the slave revolt. It's the only country where a slave revolt was successful in world history. That's their big claim to fame. Wow. And as a result, Oh, yes, that's the, their main. That's the reason why Haiti is independent today. Uh, they were born of a successful slave revolt. Uh, but that meant that independence, uh, most uh, of the white slave owners either left the country, a lot of them went to New Orleans, Louisiana, uh, or others were killed at independence. There's a mini genocide going on in 1804. Uh, so that meant the population of Haiti after independence was most importantly black Africans, people that had been introduced to the Atlantic slave trade, or a small minority of mixed race people that were descendants of unions between white slave owners and their black slaves. Uh, so it's a population uh, uh, that is racially very African. Uh, most people come from abroad, usually from France or Canada or the US, uh, tend to be a white or mixed race descent. So they stand out very easily because, well, that's the one guy that is there. Uh, so for safety, that adds an issue because it is very obvious that you're, you don't belong, that you're an outsider. And by default, if you're a tourist, I mean, you have to carry cash with you, a few places accept credit cards. So even if you only have, I don't know, two, three, four hundred dollars on you, which is necessary for a few days of, you know, uh, booking hotels and such, uh, that might be the yearly income of many Haitians. Uh, so there's that safety element to keep in mind. Got it. Got and because it. many Haitians are unemployed, uh, many of them will try always to ask for you to help, not necessarily attack you or steal from you, but just... Uh, offer themselves to be the guide, so ask for money or <laughs> sell you something just because, well, they're poor and uh, clearly you have money and they're trying to sell you something. So for personal safety, the best is just to hire somebody for the day. Yes, if you go hiking, it seems to be bizarre, but hire somebody to uh, carry your bag. And as a white person, you have that mental block about saying, I'm going to use, especially I'm a French descent, so talk to a black Haitian and say, carry my bag. But uh, it will be very poorly viewed that you're an outsider. Obviously, you have money and you're not sharing in the wealth. So hire people to accompany you and show you the ropes and translate or what have you 
for your personal safety and it will be much better regarded. Yeah. Wow. That's a great piece of advice right there. Yeah. You would think it's the opposite, right? Oh, look at him treating these people like his slaves. But what you're saying Mm -hmm. is you're spreading the wealth and you are providing um, resources to individuals who need it. I like that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Or, uh, there's a beautiful uh, market in Port-au-Prince. Uh, it's called the Iron Market because it's an iron steel architecture and a lot of handicrafts there. Uh, yeah, you walk in, get somebody to be your guide slash the person holding your purchases to f- go to the market uh, because yeah, the person will negotiate the prices for you, show you around, give you some advice, do the translation. Uh, if you don't, then you'll be constantly assaulted by people trying to be your guy, trying to sell you something. So you need to have somebody by your side. Uh, as far as like personal danger, I guess uh, the scariest in retrospect uh, would have been uh, when I came back one time, I went to the north, Cape Haitian, that used to be the big city in colonial times. And the person I was uh, studying at that time, I wrote a biography of Toussaint Louverture, the great hero of the Haitian slave revolt, and he was from the north. So I wanted to see his sights and such. Uh, so I hired a taxi for the day to go to his plantation, some uh, the citadel, the big castle, and so forth. Except uh, there was some upheaval on the main road, and the road was blocked by some uh, demonstration. So the taxi driver had to stop, uh, but told me, don't worry, I'm going to talk to, there's a young guy there with a motorcycle, he'll take you on some alternate route. Uh, so next thing I know, I'm on the back of a motorcycle with some dude I don't know going, in that case, all the way into the hills uh, through more small trails. Maybe not the safest thing. Uh, there, the lower, the the more rural areas will often be governed by local strongmen. So one way to make money is by just extorting money from the locals. So they would set up a roadblock on the trail in the mountain and just ask for money from people passing by as if they created a, a pole, uh, a toll on the road. Uh, so I find that annoying because I know that uh, corruption and political abuse is um, that would be the main cause of poverty in Haiti today. So I refuse to pay, and we go through, and then a mile later there's another dude, and I refuse to pay. So I went through three roadblocks until I reached the destination I wanted to go to, uh, the old palace and castle of King Christophe, one of the kings of 19th century Haiti. So I spent the day visiting that place, which is absolutely gorgeous. And on the way back, we just go through the same uh, uh, polls again, uh, tolls again. I uh, still refuse to pay, but by that point, it's getting late and darker. And the guy who was at one of the toll booths, a quote-unquote toll booths, was getting mad that I refused to pay the bribe. And by that point, he had drunk quite a bit. I noticed that he had a machete with him, and I realized maybe I'm doing something stupid. I'm way up in the countryside. Uh, refusing to pay the bribe to the local strongman. Uh, he's drunk, he has a machete, and if I get attacked, I'm in the middle of nowhere. Uh, so I did ask the guy uh, that was driving the motorcycle, by the way, how much is the bribe? And I did the conversion rate, and I realized it was 25 cents in US dollars. And I thought, uh, you want to be hit with a machete in rural Haiti for 25 cents? So I confessed to a crime on camera. Uh, I have bribed the Haitian official. I have given 25 cents. Uh, for Amazing. Uh, uh, yes. So that was, in which respect, not the smartest thing to do. Uh, but uh, I really, really wanted to see the historical sites. Uh, yes. Wow. You risked your life, number one, to see something that uh, that was near and dear to your heart. But number two, you risked your life over 25 cents. Pretty wild, man. Uh, yes, yes. Well, the, I'm normally uh, just a boring middle-aged uh, dad slash history professor. So I typically don't get into situations like that on purpose. Uh, but sometimes, yes, through my own stupidity. Or, uh, uh, you must have courage in your bones, man. I respect that. I uh, 
Well, a bit less courage. I used the book that you mentioned, uh, Haiti, the tumultuous history, is one that I published early in my career that focused more on the recent history of Haiti, and I used to do that. And over the past 10 years, I've shifted my focus more to colonial Haiti, 18th century Haiti, the time of the Haitian Revolution, that slave revolt that I talked to you about, in part because I don't have to travel to Haiti as much uh, since this is a colonial era. The records would mostly be in, in France, uh, where the colonial archives are. In that case, it's a bit easier to travel to do my research, and the greater danger I have there would be, I don't know, a paper cut at the archives. So <laughs> I'm not as courageous as you make me out to be. Well, you're an avid writer. I think you have, there's a bunch of, of your uh, products here on Amazon. Uh, how many books are you a part of? Uh, well, I've written five books altogether. Uh, the one that uh, you mentioned, the Haiti, the tumultuous history, would be the one catered to a wider audience. Uh, before that, I had published a book called Clinton in Haiti, which was about another U.S. invasion in 1994 under Bill Clinton. Uh, that was initially my PhD dissertation. Uh, since then, uh, the books that I've written are more about the colonial period and the Haitian Revolution. Uh, I did a biography of Toussaint Louverture, which I guess will be uh, also quite readable for a wide audience. Uh, it's called Toussaint Louverture, A Revolutionary Life. And this one is about the main figure uh, of the Haitian Revolution, the one that led the slave revolt, the only successful slave revolt in world history. I've also published these memoirs, that's more for an academic audience, and also a book on the Haitian War of Independence. That would be an interesting read if you went to an expedition under Napoleon and fights in the colonial wars in the Caribbean and so forth. So uh, I'm glad you brought up your, 19, uh, or your 2004 book uh, on the 1994 U.S. invasion of Haiti. Clinton right now is is very big in the news. I don't know if you're paying attention to what's happening here in the U.S., but uh, he's very big in the news as of right now. And uh, I believe when I look on the uh, the aspect of the what is it, the Clinton initiative, uh, there, there's some type of uh, group that they put together. And I think it's a way to funnel money. Uh, out of the U.S. into Haiti, back into their pockets. That's the way I look at it. So can you explain a little bit about your book, Clinton in Haiti? Uh, yes. Well, the basics are fairly simple. In 1994, uh, there was a dictatorship in Haiti. The democratically elected government had been overthrown. Uh, the elected leader was living in exile in the U.S. And the U.S. Uh, threatened an invasion of Haiti uh, in order to force the dictator out and bring the democratically elected president back. Uh, in the end, the local dictators flinched and the U.S. did not have to have actually use force. Uh, U.S. troops landed peacefully and occupied the country for a number of years, allowing for the president that had been democratically elected uh, to get back to power. Uh, the issue was more of motive. You know, why would Bill Clinton, of all places, invade Haiti? And that's like everything else, I guess, a, a mix. Uh, one thing, he has a personal attachment to Haiti. I think he and Hillary went there on honeymoon way back when, when they were young. So he has that attachment to the country. It is also a country that matters a lot to the black electorate in the U.S. because this is the black country in the Caribbean. And the Congressional Black Caucus, that is a big part of the Democratic majority in Congress, uh, was putting pressure on Bill Clinton to do something about dictatorship in Haiti. Uh, there is that as well. That's also the context right after, after the Cold War, the Soviet Union was gone, and there was talk in the 90s of doing a, a new world order where the U.S. would be the sole superpower and try to spread liberalism, democracy all around the world. Uh, the U.S. tried to do that in Somalia. Uh, that did not turn out too well. 
There was some talk of intervening in Rwanda during the genocide. That's early 1994. Uh, the Clinton administration kind of flinched there because it was a bit too complicated and nobody wanted to be back in Africa again after Somalia. So Haiti, of all these crises of the 90s, seemed like the easiest place to be. It's close to the U.S. The U.S. has invaded before. Uh, so that's a, a conflict that the U.S. seemed to tackle well. Wow. Yeah. Uh, one thing that people often forget, because there's always that talk about U.S. imperialism, that the U.S. is always out to invade neighboring countries. Uh, people often forget that sometimes there is an invitation done by the countries, at least the elites of that countries, that have something going on for them. Uh, Jean-Bertrand Aristide was the president of Haiti who had been overthrown. And after he was overthrown, he settled in Washington, D.C., hired lobbyists in the U.S. for a lot of money, local lawyers, to lobby the U.S. government time and time again to essentially invade his country so that he could go back to power. Uh, which is kind of interesting because Aristide himself was a leftist, anti-imperialist, anti-American president, one in power. But when he was exiled, he went to the one country that could bring him back to power. And so behind the scenes, he lobbied the U.S. administration of Clinton uh, mercilessly to get them to invade his country. I guess the last point I would include is immigration. Uh, Haiti, because it is poor economically and also often run, run by bad regimes, uh, well, that gives a lot of incentive for Haitians to leave Haiti, and their main destination will be Florida. So especially around 1994, there was a big wave of boat people going to the shores of Florida, and that put a lot of pressure on Bill Clinton to try to halt uh, that wave of immigration from Haiti. Uh, and one way to do it would be to reinstall a democratic regime in Haiti, and then there would be no excuse for Haitians to flee and seek political asylum in Florida. There is a bit of a controversial aspect to it, because right next to Haiti is Cuba, where a lot of immigrants also come from Cuba to Florida. Uh, when they do so, they're admitted by default. Uh, they all get asylum if they come from Cuba, uh, because they come from a communist dictatorship. So by default, they get asylum. Uh, people who come from Haiti, 99% of the time, will be sent back to Haiti. Uh, so Haitians will complain there's a bit of a double uh, standard there. And since Haitians tend to be far darker than Cubans on average, also complain that there might be a, a racist element that because Haitians have a dark skin and have that bad reputation, uh, they don't get uh, admitted into the U.S. as easily as Cubans do. Yeah, I think it's the CGI, Clinton Global Initiative or the Clinton Foundation that are that they're still involved in Haiti. Um, would you say that they have done great for Haiti or not so great? And the reason why I ask is because I saw stats that show they raised a lot of money. They say they donate a lot of money, but there's a very small percentage that ever ended up in Haiti. What are your thoughts? Uh, yes, the issue of foreign aid in general, not just from Clinton, but everybody in general, uh, tends to be a controversial one. Uh, when you see Haiti being so poor and some people blaming the poverty on the legacy of French, Spanish, American imperialism, uh, the tendency is to say, well, rich countries have a duty to help Haiti lift it out of poverty. So since the 1970s, I would say there's a big rise in aid to Haiti, either through direct government to government action or through more private initiatives uh, like Clinton would lead. And the sums are quite significant. You're talking billions of dollars a year, which is a lot for the GDP of Haiti. Uh, whether that makes a difference or not, I would be very dubious. I'm of the school that thinks that the aid to Haiti has not achieved uh, much. Well, after all, it's even poorer now than it was 40 years ago when the aid started in large numbers. So clearly something has gone wrong. Wow. Uh, a lot of the money 
uh, has been absorbed uh, by the people who disperse the money. You know, you have to have people who go to Haiti and they travel on expense accounts and go to expensive hotels because they have to check how the money is spent. Uh, so there's money left there. Uh, Haiti has one of the highest rates of corruption in the world. So obviously local politicians will try to get their hands on that. And there's also the issue of does that promote local growth if everything is based on dependency and receiving money from outside help? Uh, sometimes also outside help can crowd local uh, economy. Uh, there was a case for that point 1970s when the U.S. would donate a lot of excess rice. There's overproduction of rice in the U.S. So the U.S. government thought, well, we have too much rice. Haitians are poor. They're hungry. Why don't we send bags of rice to Haiti? which seemed like a good idea until you realize that most Haitians are farmers producing things like rice. So if you're a local farmer, how can you compete against USAID bags of rice that arrive for free uh, when you're trying to make a living as a local farmer? So that had a way of killing the local agricultural sector and making the country even hungrier than before. So you have to be careful about the side effects of the point aid. Uh, I would say overall, the countries that have done well in the Caribbean have done so more through traditional capitalistic practices of uh, welcoming tourists and making money off tourism. That's the main industry of the Caribbean. Or maybe like Mexico has done, uh, creating a lot of uh, local industry to export products to the U.S. That's a big market. And if I had to make a guess, I would say uh, uh, relying on tourism or exposed to the U.S. Uh, would be a more long-term, lasting uh, kind of recipe for development than Haiti than relying, relying on handouts from rich countries that don't really produce much lasting effect. Hmm. Uh, but one thing I do need to mention, because that's a big issue in Haiti, is the controversy over reparations. Uh, when Haiti became independent in 1804, uh, for a while, France would not recognize the independence of that country. So about 20 years later, uh, Haiti agreed to give essentially a, a check to France, uh, which was 150 million gold francs back in 1825, as a way to settle all the financial disputes from independence and get France to officially recognize Haiti so that it would have diplomatic relations with other countries. Uh, that was a big sum for Haiti. At the time, uh, they had to borrow money to pay that indemnity to France. And there was also the added insult that the money was used to pay planners that had fled from Haiti and kind of reimbursed them for the fact that they had lost their plantation in Haiti. Uh, and many Haitians to the present time will say that this is what set Haiti on a path to financial ruin since then. I don't fully blame the, uh, I don't fully buy the argument because this was over almost 200 years ago now. So I think uh, water under the bridge by that point, but it's an argument that Haitian politicians will make uh, that this indemnity to France should be paid back. Uh, with compounded interest over 200 years and financial penalties, and they've done the math, and I think that adds up to a bit over $21 billion. Uh, so if you listen to a Haitian uh, elites, that would be their recipe for lifting Haiti out of poverty, that France, at the former colonial power, should write a big check for $21 billion, not quite foreign aid in that case, more like reparations, and magically uh, everything will be fixed in Haiti. Uh, I have some doubt that this will happen, but... Uh, needed to mention that because it is a, a big part of the discourse uh, now. Wow! Oh, twenty-one billion. They say, huh? Yeah, that's well, uh, that's amazing. I, I'm, uh, I'm simplifying the number. When that demand was first made, which was I think around two thousand and three, uh, 
uh, they calculated very precisely what the compounded interest would be over several years. So it was 21 billion, 857 million, 322,000, all the way to the end, and 57 cents. Uh, which some Haitians uh, like to joke, uh, well, don't forget the 57 cents because by the time everybody else takes their cut, that's the money that will actually go to us. So don't forget the 57 cents, please. Yeah, the 21 billion goes to the politicians. The rest go to you guys. That's how they look at it, probably. At least that was that was the joke, yes. <laughs> uh, last two questions I have for you. Number mm-hmm. one, what's the sentiment um, of the average Haitian upon the United States? Uh, the reason why I ask is because I think anytime the U.S. tries to impose their viewpoints on a separate mm-hmm. country, it doesn't do any good. And it turns out that they don't like it if they have a culture and we're trying to affect it. So that's my first question. Second question, what is what is something that we can learn from what ha- the Haiti went through? Is there any takeaways? All right, well, let's start with the first question regarding Haitian views of the U.S. Yeah. Uh, it's a complicated one, which is true of many other countries in the world. Uh, many countries, including my home country of France, often express anti-American sentiments, uh, especially Haiti, since they were invaded by the U.S. in 1994, 1915. Uh, they tend to blame the U.S. for a lot of the ills that have befallen Haitians. Uh, So politicians will routinely express anti-American views, saying this is imperial power that has stolen money from us and they dominated us and the CIA. And it even goes into weird territory. When there was a tragic earthquake in 2010 in Port-au-Prince, there were rumors that uh, the earthquake had been sparked by a secret weapon that the U.S. military has devised, and they were testing it on Haiti to see if they could spark an earthquake at a distance. And that's why the earthquake had happened. Uh, so there's that, a strong undercurrent of anti-Americanism. Wow. On the other hand, if you told Haitians, can you get a visa for the U.S. today? Uh, I think the country would be emptied in five seconds. Like 99% of the country would say, yes, I do want to immigrate to the U.S. About 2 million Haitian Americans live in the U.S. So at the same time that there's strong anti-American sentiment, there's also a desire to move to the U.S., embrace American culture, move up to American standards of living. Uh, so it's a complicated story there. As far as learning from uh, the lessons of uh, Haiti, I would say there are two of them. Uh, One of them is uh, the issue of environmental devastation. We keep talking about climate change and how that could impact the the U.S. Well, Haiti has gone to something similar, which is uh, deforestation. Uh, As the population of the country grew and grew in the 20th century, uh, farmers moved into the interior of Haiti, which is very mountainous, uh, to acquire more farmland, which involved cutting all the virgin rainforest. Uh, that create farmland in the short run, but whenever you have a tropical downpour, if you don't have any soil cover, all the ground will be washed away. And then you end up uh, with rocky soil that is denuded and that is unsuitable for agriculture. And all the soil that is washed away will end up getting into the rivers, eventually into uh, the coral reefs and kill the fishing as well. Uh, and eventually have drought in the long run because now there is no forest cover. Uh, you can take a picture of the border between Haiti and the Dominican Republic seen from the air, and you can actually see the border. Uh, and one side is all green, the other side is all yellow and parched. So let's remind that as we mismanage our environment, uh, we can do it in a way that ruins the economy. Uh, the other lesson, I guess, would be the impact of political instability in a country. I remember when I first uh, covered uh, Haiti, uh, there was a element of 
quote-unquote fun about saying, oh, look at how dysfunctional the political system is, and every election ends up with the loser deciding that they lost in a way that was unfair, and then there will be a riot, and whoever wins that riot actually gets to be president. And you could look at it from a French-American perspective and sneer at it a bit. And then, well, the politics of the U.S. are getting more Haitians by the year, where you do have sharply divided political parties, uh, with talk about voter fraud every time somebody loses an election, an actual riot to try to overthrow the election in the last presidential election. And I'm thinking, well, that's a dangerous slope because if you go that way, uh, you can uh, quickly have a, a political dysfunction that is bad, bad enough that this can ruin your country, uh, that you might not have the best person elected. Uh, you might have instability that chases away business owners. Uh, misallocation of resources. I mean, a lot of things, bad things, come from political instability. And uh, I would want to make sure that uh, whatever happens in the next few years, the U.S. gets its house in order and goes back to the old boring politics of some moderate Republican versus a moderate Democrat. <laughs> and whoever Those days are gone, I think, sir. <laughs> I want politics to be boring again because uh, the excitement that we've had over the past five, ten years is uh, can be dangerous. Uh, Haitian politics are very exciting, but in a, a way that has had a, a heavy toll on, on the long-term development of Haiti. Wow. Yeah, you are right about that. I don't think people are trusting the elections anymore here in the United States. So that is a recipe for disaster, and you're learning it from Haiti. Professor Philippe Girard, it is an honor to talk with you. You're obviously a man who's well-educated on this topic, but also you have courage in your bones for risking your life. <laughs> for the sites of history. Amazing stuff, sir. So a website, any social media to get in touch with you if they want to contact you? Uh, no, I'm an old school historian. I do uh, 18th century documents. So no, I'm very not present uh, online. Uh, but if you're interested in the topic, you have the two books, uh, Haiti, the tumultuous history, uh, more about the general history of Haiti and why it is poor. Uh, or if you're interested in more in the life of Toussaint Overture and the Haitian Revolution, look up for uh, Toussaint Overture, a revolutionary life. And that's a good read. And it's one of the most interesting figures in world history. Well, you just said you're a boring historian. I watched Indiana Jones growing up. I don't think historians are boring at all. You guys are out there, uh, you know, living some of the uh, the dreams that we uh, we all share. So uh, great stuff. I really appreciate all the insight that you shared with us. Remember, guys, check out his book. Clinton in Haiti is one book that's probably pretty relevant now, especially with Bill Clinton in the mm -hmm. news. Or if you want to take a look at his other books regarding uh uh, there's another one, uh, to, the, A Revolutionary Life, Leonard Cohen on a Wire, The Tumultuous History of Haiti. Very good stuff. 188 reviews. I commend you for that. That's difficult to get. Okay. All right. Remember, okay. guys, a million-dollar book will lead to a million-dollar life. Right on.